0: Main standing for the reading of the text this morning from Matthew chapter 21. I'll begin reading at verse 1 through 13 as we now continue what we began last time we met together from this passage. Now hear the word of God. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who following followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that your spirit would now fall fresh upon us. And anoint the preacher such that the truth would go forth in the power of the Spirit and not in the strength of a man. And we pray that our hearts would be open and receptive to who this is before us as our eyes behold the King and the great High Priest. And we ask that You would change us. And conform us into his image as he is such the perfect image of God. And we pray that you would work in our hearts. And only the way that you can. Lord, there has been. Great spiritual battles going on in the church. In this very congregation. Congregation. In the hearts and minds of your people. Even in the heart and mind of their pastor. And I pray that our King Jesus will come in his valiant authority. And that he would reign and bring us all under his lordship. And rule and defeat all of our enemies. And drive them far from this place even now. And that in His high priestly character, that He would in His great zeal defend us. And that He would pray for us. So that we would not be sifted as wheat. We would not be deceived as even the elect could happen to be prone to do should Christ not intercede for us. That we would be devoured should our Lord not protect us. So Lord, we pray in this hour, give us the victory that only our King and our priests can give. For it is in His strong name that we pray against all of these things and for these things. Amen. You may be seated. The other Gospels, as we will see, gives us greater clarity even in this great scene that Jesus came to the temple. As we see, He formed a whip of cords and drove out from the temple all of those who sold in the temple, and He overturned their tables, and he said to them, my house shall be a house of prayer, and you have defiled it and made it a den of thieves. John's gospel adds to this when he says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. A direct quote from Psalm sixty-nine nine. Today, we often see people with a very low view of the church. This is not only true for those in the world, but it's true for Christians. It's true for those who are in church today. It's true for those who proclaim Christ today who are not in church today. And perhaps this would be analogous to the Jews who had a very low view in that day of the temple. The season that Jesus entered Jerusalem was Passover. The Jews had congregated from all around and the city was, was full beyond capacity with Jews for the, the feast according to the scripture. And they had gathered there at Passover and it was decreed of them that they would then take sacrificial lamb on the tenth day, save it to the fourteenth day, they would slaughter it at twilight, and here we find merchandising and money changing going on in the temple complex for the selling of those sacrificial animals as well as particularly um, other sacrifices for that week. And the Jews had taken something of very deep importance in the Scripture and in their Relationship with God through faith, and they had made it an empty tradition such that it defiled the temple itself. The Passover was that which identified the release of God's people from bondage in order to worship Him. Half of Exodus is about the release from bondage. The other half is about the building of a tabernacle to worship. He releases us in order to worship Him. And Jesus called this temple that He is now in the presence of a house of prayer. He's now quoting from Isaiah 56, 7 where the temple was called a house of prayer for all of the nations and the promise would be that even the Gentiles would come to this great place and it was a magnificent place where God would meet with His creatures that He had made in His image and He would fellowship with them there. But the Jews that day were not praying in the temple. They were not worshiping there. The temple had become the a city market in the in the hustle and bustle of the great festival going on and today we see the same kind of error going to church what's it about it's about the worship of god And praying is one of the chief things we do in worship. Yet why are the church prayer meetings usually the lowest in attendance of all the services that the church has? People show up for festivals, they come to events, they come to the concerts, they will not miss the fellowship events and certainly the food, but not so much the prayer meetings. And this, in effect, is what's going on in Jesus' day. Excitement of the festival, but the meaning in the heart of it is gone. So when Jesus arrived in their midst, He drove them out with a whip, making quite a scene there that day, turning over their tables and making a mess out of the whole thing. You know, I was thinking about this particular scene, this violent scene that our Lord caused in the temple complex that day, comparing it with really how people see the church today. The church is very soft, effeminate. It lacks its strength and zeal for God's holiness. And we're faulted for these kinds of characteristics that Jesus Himself exhibited in His perfection of God. And when we emulate this kind of zeal, we are confronted as spiritual abusers. And we have an entire weak church that has allowed unholy things to come in and profane the temple of almighty holy god and we should repent of this sin the actions you see jesus take on that day was one of a priest who was acting to protect god's holiness he entered in jerusalem the city as a king he came into the temple As the priest. He was both. And as priest today. You and I have a responsibility. To protect God's holiness in his church. And Jesus' actions then. Are related to how we are to live today. In that aspect. We have conservative presbyterian denominations. Who are putting up with homosexuality and with debauchery and with sin and fornication and not being zealous for God's holiness to do something about it because we're effeminate and we're more fearful of man than we are of God. The last time we looked at this passage, we considered the kingship of Jesus as he rode in to Jerusalem, presenting himself openly and declaring himself openly as Israel's awaited messianic king. And in Jesus' coming, the promised eternal kingdom of God came, the kingdom came in with the presence of the king. And his kingship, however, is inseparable from his priesthood. And Jesus is unique in this respect because no king could ever perform the duties of a priest and no priest could ever assume the place of a king after the fall. Since the fall of mankind, that combination where a priest and a king were merged into one person is unique to Jesus himself until he restores the image of God in man. Which is what he did. And now today, because of it, we are kings and priests. As the scripture said. And what we observe in this passage is not only the kingship of Christ, but His royal priesthood. And this would be displayed in a violent manner in the temple complex. And I want to bring out several points as we consider the high priesthood of Jesus Christ and what it even means to us. As Jesus presented Himself as a king, as Israel's long-awaited king, He goes directly into the temple, and he claims it as his own. My house, he calls the temple, standing in its courtyard. This was prophesied by Malachi in chapter 3 when it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Speaking about, we know, John the Baptist would prepare the way before the Lord. And the Lord whom you seek... "...will suddenly come to His temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming," says the Lord of hosts. "...but who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears?" For he is like the refiner's fire and the launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier as silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi. And he will purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And that's what was going on that very moment. When he creates this violent scene in the temple. As Jesus drives out the money changers, He claims the temple as His house. And the temple is where God meets with His people. And the people would converse, meet with Him in prayer. And that's why the temple was holy ground. This was the place where heaven and earth come together at this dangerous intersection where the presence of God dwells with His people. And the people have an audience with God there through their high priest. But notice, secondly, what we see Jesus do when he comes. He drives out the money changers in a spirit of zeal unlike we have seen before. Psalm 69 9 says that zeal for God's house has eaten him up. Zeal in Jesus' day was a term that was closely identified and defined and modeled with two men of the Old Testament. And to understand what the word zeal means to a first century Jew, we have to understand what these two men did who was characterized By zeal. Because these two men became a model of zeal that God blessed. The first of this, and the first man, is Phinehas. We find his story in Numbers 25. And a bit of context there, and if you happen to have your Scriptures with you, you may want to turn to Numbers 25. The context there was the children of Israel went and committed harlotry and they began to worship the gods and even offer sacrifices to the pagan gods around them, to the Moabite gods and the Midianites. And so vile was their offense that was going on in the presence of the holy God of Israel. That verse 6 says, And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman. He did this in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children in Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And blatantly and brazenly, he takes this woman makes an open show of Herb in front of them all, and then heads to the privacy of his tent to do ungodly fornication. Phinehas would not have this. And immediately he grabbed a javelin and he followed them The Lord's plague had broken out on the people because of their sinfulness. And in verse 11, Phinehas drove the javelin through the man and the woman, killing them both in this violent display of righteousness. And then the Scripture says in verse 11, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, he was a priest, The son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, behold, I have given to him my covenant of peace And it shall come to him and his descendants after him as an everlasting covenant of priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. That was the defining moment for zeal. It had immediate results in that the plague stopped and God blessed Phinehas with this covenant of peace with the everlasting priesthood. The next time we're reading about this incident in the Psalms, in Psalm 106, verse 30 says, then Phinehas stood up and he intervened and the plague was stopped and that was accounted to him. It was reckoned to him as righteousness to all generations forevermore. Without spending too much time extracting all of the meaning of these verses, consider the associated words from these two passages with Phinehas and his zeal. And notice how this is connected to Jesus' priesthood. Phinehas was a priest. He was zealous with God's zeal to protect God's holiness. When he interacted in this zeal, it blessed the people. God promised to him an everlasting priesthood, which was characterized by peace, the covenant of peace, and by righteousness from Psalm 106. And lastly, the action that he took was violent. Elijah was the second person. It also helps us to understand this term zeal as a Jew would understand it in the day that Jesus was presenting himself as the great high priest in his temple. You remember Elijah had the great showdown at Mount Carmel where he then took 400 of the prophets of Baal and he executed them by the brook Kishon. Jehu would then later finish this business that God had prophesied through Elijah when he would then take and slaughter all of Ahab's descendants. And he says to, in that context, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. And what he does is he then slaughters all of Ahab's descendants and God blessed him for that violent act of zeal. Phinehas and Elijah were honored by God for their violent actions against sin among God's people. And they became the model of violent zeal and righteous jealousy for God's holiness. And God's blessing was often kept back from God's people because of their zen, sin. And so men who were filled with zeal or zealots would then work and deal to, with sin to restore God's blessing. This is the idea behind Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul, when he says in Philippians 3, 5, and 6 regarding the term zeal. He's giving his pedigree there. And he says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. And this is why Paul could feel justified in stoning Stephen because he saw Stephen as a threat to God's holiness and particularly in a blasphemy to God's temple. So it was a violent work. It was a violent action that Paul felt justified following in the train of the other zealots like the idea of Phinehas and like the pattern of Elijah and others who would then be used to be justified by God and blessed by God for their zeal. And so, the term zeal was loaded with meaning. It didn't simply mean like we think of the word today, some kind of eager desire or a bit over-enthusiastic Zeal to the first century Jew was fervor for God's holiness that could exhibit itself violently. And so it is said of Jesus that zeal for his house ate him up. It's in this vein that he goes into the temple and in this violent zeal overturns the money changers. This is not something that happened in a couple of minutes and the event was over. He went and made a whip of cords. He went through and turned over money changers, whipping them and lashing them out and drove them out of the temple. And he declares in righteous indignation that this, his house, is a holy house. It is God's house of prayer. You have defiled it by making it a den of thieves. And what we see there is a zealous priest defending God's temple. He was not slack in protecting God's sanctuary from outside threats as Adam had been slack in the garden. Jesus took action. Third, this royal priesthood was man's role by divine design from creation. This is how you and I were designed in Genesis 2. This was by nature who God made us to be. When God made man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, he put him in the garden that he made east in Eden to tend it and to keep it. And as man had these twin responsibilities to cultivate the garden and to take dominion over all of the world, and then to protect those things against all threats of intruders, he had these responsibility of what kings do and what priests do. As a king man as God's image bearing vice regent was to be fruitful and multiply and to take dominion on the earth. But before the fall the kingly role was about taking God's glory And taking his wisdom throughout all of creation and and showing forth its creator through the image that man was. Before the fall, it did not carry with it the aspect of defeating nations with the sword. But it did have the character of taking dominion over all of the earth. And acting as God's vice regent with authority. But as a priest, it was man's duty to keep the garden, to protect the sanctuary where God's presence would dwell upon the earth. To keep the garden is this idea of protecting it from outside threat, and we we know the story. It was the role of the priest, however, to guard guard God's holiness and to keep sin out of the garden so God's blessing would remain. And when Adam failed, his very responsibilities according to the divine design and how God had made him, he was ejected from God's sanctuary An angelic cherubim were placed at the entrance to guard it. He forfeited his dominion and his kingship to the dark forces who would then be called the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself. It was this keeping of the garden sanctuary which is the action that Phinehas took in his day. And this is what happened later when King Uzziah, one of the kings of Judah, tried to go into the temple to offer sacrifice as a king. Something no man since the fall, no king could do. That was preserved only for the ultimate king priest, the Messiah. But he, in his arrogant pride, goes into the temple... And he begins to try to make sacrifice as a duty of a priest. And we have in 2 Chronicles 26 of that account. And the priest got indignant with him and he got very upset until it says that the priest, quote, thrust him out of the place. It was the jurisdiction of the priestly sanctuary that they then guarded the holiness of God even against kings that breached their rightful jurisdiction. And God blessed the priests for that violent act in protecting His holiness even against the king. We know that Uzziah was smitten with with, uh, leprosy. And when he died, he died with leprosy. And it was that year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah saw the Lord. High and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. And he was sitting upon his throne. And the angels were crying, Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah fell to his face. When man fell into sin, he forfeited his dominion of the earth and his priesthood was then marred. As God began to reveal how he would then restore man, he would appoint an Aaronic priest who was charged to guard the holiness of God while providing a way for God's people to come back to him to worship. And God would appoint Judaic kings who would reign over His people to provide them the protection from the enemies so that God's people could worship Him. But no man since the fall could ever take on those roles in one person, both a priest and a king. That was exclusively preserved for Messiah. He alone would be both priest and king. He alone would be the perfect image bearer of God, unmarred from the fall, and therefore could act as the perfect high sovereign king and the perfect great high priest. He alone could and he would restore the image of God in sinners and restore to us the role that we had in the garden of being kings and priests cultivators and protectors. So as we see Jesus entering in Jerusalem as Israel's king, He was equally also the true great high priest. And the violence that we see did not come from His kingly aspect as much as it did from His priestly work. And He went directly to the temple, claimed it His own, and in violent zeal drove out all those who defiled it. He was acting as a faithful priest to protect God's holiness and cleanse the temple from sin and defilement to pave the way for God to bless His people once again. To defile the temple was to blaspheme God Himself. Now let's remember what the temple exactly was. Is This is thing of stone that was set up in the city of Jerusalem in the Middle East. The temple was much more than that. That was simply the emblem of what the truth of it was revealing. The temple was where God would meet with His people. It was holy ground. The physical building was only the emblem. It was never intended to be the space where God would dwell on earth to meet His people it was the emblem of that. But as we see, it was a type, meaning something in the future would be its fulfillment. And the New Testament tells us there are four fulfillments of the temple and the tabernacle. And very quickly, for as a matter of review, one of the fulfillment of the temple, the reality of which it was standing, was Jesus' own resurrected body. He says, Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Second chapter of John, verse 19 and 21. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two, making the old temple invalid, no longer valid. His resurrected body became the new temple, the intersection between heaven and earth, so that as Jacob's ladder, On earth, which ascend up into heaven, and angels ascending and descending upon it. This is our Lord Jesus. He is the connecting, the intersection between heaven and earth in the resurrected body of our Lord Jesus. In the place where God can be found, it's behind the veil, is it not? It is in the Holy of Holies. This is the place, which is the most sacred place, where the Shekinah glory of God dwells. And we see... That the hope that we have, as we read earlier, is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence of God behind the veil. So the first reality of the temple is the resurrected body of Christ Himself. A second reality of this is given to us in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So the physical body of the believer, which is united to Christ by faith, is also said to be the temple of God. But a third reality of which is called the temple, is the corporate body of Christ, the church, which is united to his resurrected and physical body. We have several passages throughout the New Testament that speaks of the church corporately as the temple of God, especially passages like Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul is speaking about the church as a building made of living stones, being joined together, grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where we are called the temple of the living God, there are many passages of which the corporate church is spoken of as the temple. But it is united corporately to the resurrected and physical body of Christ Himself. And then we see the fourth reality of the temple is spoken of as heaven itself. Hebrews 9 speaks of this on a couple of occasions, but verse 24 says, Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. See, the temple and the tabernacle were the copies of that which is true. And where Jesus entered into, He entered into heaven itself, which is the reality of the temple. Now if you put all these together, these are not four separate temples categorized and separated one from another, but they are all part of the one temple complex and as the physical temple complex would demonstrate, the closer you got to the presence of God's glory, the more restricted those places became. Christ's physical resurrected body is not present in heaven itself, in the holy of holies, where the Shekinah glory of God is present. Christ's physical body is the intersection between heaven and earth. And that physical resurrected body of Christ is inseparably united to His church. So that in Ephesians 5, it says, The two will become one flesh, but I speak to you about Christ in the church. Flesh. The flesh, the resurrected flesh of Jesus Christ being united inseparably to the embodiment of the church. And then the individual Christian in union with Christ by faith, which is inseparable from being united to the church itself because He's a member of that body. All of this makes up the temple. The temple, the intersection between heaven and earth, this God space where man in his temporal place of time, space, and matter can go into the presence of eternal, almighty God. And we can fellowship there at the intersection where God meets with His people really in the body of Christ united to His church where we are members individually. And to have a low view of that temple, to do the merchandising and to bring defilement into that holy place caused the Lord's zeal to rise up violently and in quite a scene that would make us all very uncomfortable if He came back and did that today in the church. This is often what The church needs. He calls this the house of prayer. The place where we fellowship with God. The place where we have an audience with God. The place where He hears our prayers. The place where He answers our prayers. It's in the holy of holies. It's in the temple. Here's Christ in His high priestly work making an entry for us there. And He is the one protecting the holiness of God and dealing with sin so that God's blessings would be given and they would be maintained among His people. Christ has made the way into the presence of God where heaven and earth meet and God meets with his people and his people can talk with him personally. What a great and amazing thing this is that we have just got such a low view of. But the, another point here is that Christ's priesthood cannot be separated from His kingship. As Hebrews informs us that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not after the Levitical Aaronic priesthood, but superior to that. He is a priest who is a king. And a king by His very name, Melchizedek, comes from two Hebrew words, Melech means king, Zedek means righteousness, he is the king of righteousness. So by name and order, he is the priest who is a king of righteousness. It is the scepter of righteousness by which he will rule over all of the earth, as the psalmist says. But this king of righteousness who is the great priest after the order of Melchizedek is also the king of Peace, the word is Salem. He is the king of Salem. The word Salem means peace. It is the word from which we get Jerusalem. Shalom. Jerusalem, he is the king of Jerusalem. That's why he enters in on the donkey into Jerusalem. And he goes to the temple. Jerusalem is the holy city in which the temple was situated. There is the throne of David there the high priest sits. In Christ, we have the king priest, the ultimate king priest, and our royal priesthood in him has been reestablished so that revelation, as you read in the beginning, for you were slain, it speaks of Jesus, and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and every tongue and people and nation and have made us Kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. When Christ, while He is the great high priest, we too have been restored to the kingly and priestly offices that God has designed for us to be since creation. We are to function these things in Christ. And the order of this priesthood is not Aaronic, but it is Melchizedekian. We are in a Melchizedekian priesthood. Even though Christ is the high priest, we are reigning as priests and kings. And the nature of our dominion and the nature of our priesthood has now been restored. So the nature of our reign is taking God's wisdom out into the world and proclaiming His love. That's what the Great Commission is all about. But the nature of our priesthood is zealously protecting God's holiness in this world. And particularly protecting this holy temple, the church, from intruders, and enemies of holiness while proclaiming God's praises out into the world. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. A holy nation. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. One of the indictments against the priest in Ezekiel's day is that they did not fulfill their priestly duties faithfully. Ezekiel 22:26 Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy. They have made known They have, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. They've hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Folks, every one of us has a great responsibility today to maintain God's holiness as zealous priests in God's kingdom. But ministers in the church have a special responsibility to keep the church holy and purge it from the unclean. We all have a responsibility in our own temples to be the priest to drive out the sin, to be humble and fall on our faces before the great king and the great high priest of our soul so that he will deliver us and save us to the uttermost of this sinful nature that we have. We have to be protectors of God's holiness within our own hearts. And that is why we have to maintain this with all zeal and with all diligence as a great people and a royal priesthood. God expects high things of us here. He says, be holy, for I am holy. Protect God's holiness. Protect His love Protect His righteousness. Protect the relationships that you have one with another. Because we are to promote peace in Salem, Jerusalem. And we are to be an instrument of righteousness after the order of Melchizedek. And because Christ is our High Priest, He right now is in the presence of God interceding for us and empowering us with His Spirit To avail here on earth that which he desires from heaven. So that as we pray, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we pray that we would be faithful. We can boldly enter now into heaven itself through Christ to seek the grace and the mercy that we have in our time of need. And aren't we a needy people? The priesthood of Christ is inseparable from His kingship, and together they cultivate God's glory throughout all of the earth. They protect His holiness from being defiled, but both of those must go together. We cannot bring the defilement of the world into the church and expect to cultivate His glory out into the world. Our time gathered this morning is at the intersection of where heaven and earth meet. And right now, we're in the mysterious presence of God. And we're about to come into a very close physical relationship with our our Lord and our husband at the table. Where through visible and physical signs, it would then point to the reality that the church has with the resurrected flesh and body of Jesus Christ as husband and wife, behind the veil in the presence of God, exalting in His glory. This is a house of prayer. A place of worship. A place to be protected from the stains of sin from the outside. A place where our great high priest avails for us. A place that we have our own souls secure behind the veil because the anchor is there holding us and saving us to the uttermost. This is the place that is the most holy of holies that we experience on the earth as we come in prayer, in His Word, around the table to commune with Him, believing all that He has revealed to us. Our Lord has a holy zeal that can be violent at times, but it is through His violence that He protected you and He won the great bloody battle against your greatest enemy. And so may we go and be faithful in the power that raised up Christ from the dead to be zealous for His great house, the church, His resurrected body, the individual temples, and heaven itself, all in this great temple complex where God meets with His people. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we pray the Spirit of God would take the truths and the reality of what we have looked at and what we have restored in Christ and who Christ is as our great High Priest and great King of all. And we pray that our Souls would find shelter there in him and that he would drive away all of our enemies and protect us and our holiness against the enemies of God and that you would work in our souls now as we come to the table, as we come to experience you in this tremendous way that you have given to your people that physically and sensibly with all of our senses that we have in these bodies, we might know that the Gospel is true to us and that one day we will have the resurrection of our bodies to be present with our Lord here upon the earth when heaven comes down. And We thank You for the promise. Until that day, may we labor diligently to protect Your holiness in our own lives and in the church. And in, we pray that we would be diligent to reign with Christ and taking His glorious Gospel to disciple the nations. And we pray for Your Spirit to empower us in these things by faith. In Jesus' name, Amen.